late last month, I went to Tampa for my birthday and I spent the entire trip searching for Henry Flagler. The city is one of my absolute favorites in the whole state. I have loads of nostalgia from visiting downtown Tampa for the Florida State Thespians Festival year after year. Visiting is a treat for me every single time. My family vacations on the Gulf Coast every year and the Courtney Campbell Causeway and I-275 mean that adventure awaits. I cannot resist the excitement. As I've gotten older, I found more and more to love in this massive city. There are secret pockets of culture and history and excitement. From the Gasparilla Festival that takes over the streets to the incredible immigrant village of Ybor City to the unusual tales of Hernando de Soto. When you start studying and writing about history actively, everything just starts to jump out at you. With Flagler on my mind, I had to find his fingerprints wherever I could. Henry Flagler, however, likely only visited Florida's Gulf Coast sparsely, primarily spending his later career in the northeastern parts of the state that he called home. Tampa was not his domain. In reality, it was enemy territory for him. If Henry Flagler was the king of the East Coast, Tampa was ruled by another Henry, Henry Bradley Plant. Henry Plant was Flagler's rival in almost all respects. They were both incredibly rich men from the northern states, both of whom found Florida while caring for their sick wives, both of whom built massive hotels and constructed railroads to connect them. Before Plant opened the Tampa Bay Hotel in 1891, Tampa had a population of a little over 5,000. By the turn of the century, Tampa's population had quintupled and was now at 25,000, thanks to Plant. The Tampa Bay Hotel launched the city of Tampa into the modern era. It still exists, one of the few that remain of the handful that he operated throughout the state. It is now the Plant Museum, as well as the central buildings to the University of Tampa, situated right on the Hillsborough River. If the Plant Museum is any indication, however, it's almost as if Henry Flagler didn't exist. We walked the halls of the dimly lit museum for an hour. It's spectacular to see that it still exists in its original state with statues and tapestries lining the walls, collections of artifacts in little rooms and intricately written plaques. You can visit historic bathrooms, lounges, smoking rooms, game halls, laundries. There are maps of the original grounds and historic writings by Plant himself. One room is just a room talking about Henry Plant's influence on the state of Florida. On one large wall, it refers to Henry Plant as the King of Florida. Now, I know I'm in the Plant Museum, so obviously they're going to be talking about how important and critical Henry Plant was, but I seriously, seriously balked at the idea that Plant was somehow more important than Henry Flagler. So I scoured the rooms, searching for any conversation about their rivalry. They were operating at the same times, essentially fighting the same fight. Plant built a palace, Flagler built a castle, Plant bought the middle of the state, Flagler built the east. I was searching for any indication of this rivalry that fueled their later lives, but I found none. Not even a mention of his name. Nothing. At last, in a pile of books, was a series of articles about Flagler and Plant and their famous rivalry. After scanning the halls of the Plant Museum, I find Flagler yet again. Even though it took me all this time to find him, Plant and Flagler could not have been more aware of each other. 
As they spent the 1890s building their respective empires across the Sunshine State, they were both facing personal and financial dilemmas nearly in sync. But the biggest conflict of their rivalry was not who was going to have the biggest empire. Rather, it was a race to one destination alone. Miami. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. For the month of June, I'll be telling you the story of Henry Flagler's life. Last week, I told you about his entire path up until 1890, when he built the first bridge across the St. Johns River. If you haven't listened to that one already, I would really recommend that you go back and listen so that you aren't lost in this story. This week, the rivalry between Henry Plant and Henry Flagler, and the incredible journey that brought the railroad to Miami. Chapter 2, The Iron Frontier There are very significant figures throughout history that go unremarked upon or get stuck in the footnotes. They don't get buildings named after them, no countries or cities continue their legacies, They were the people on the ground, or in the back rooms, that go missing from the grand pictures of history. Without their work, however, the Titans may not have the legacies that they possess today. One of those figures is James Edmondson Ingram. James was a railroad man, an engineer, who moved to Florida at the age of 24 to seek employment in the burgeoning South. It was then that Ingram was employed by the first of the three Henrys that he would work for in his life. The first was Henry Sanford, founder of the town that still bears his name in Central Florida. Right after the Civil War, Sanford came to Florida, bought 12,500 acres, and sought to make Sanford the gateway to Southern Florida. It was the mid-1870s, and train development was relatively still. Regardless, he had railroads, and they were helping move people, and, of course, citrus. He was a rich man, however, and every rich man needs someone to do the dirty work for him. He needed someone to run his railroad. Enter James Ingram. Sanford's train system was called the South Florida Railroad, and it connected Sanford to Tampa, both of which were still relatively minor cities, especially when compared to the booming Jacksonville. The railroad had stops all throughout Central Florida, and many routes connected to this railway are still in use today. Sunrail, as a matter of fact, runs on these old rails. James Ingram ran this system himself as the president of the company. He was in his early 30s and had a similarly bushy mustache as Henry Flagler, except Ingram's had an upturn at the ends, giving him an appearance of always being quite pleased. Ingram had a sudden career shift when his railroad was purchased by his second Henry, Henry Plant, from Tampa Bay. Plant was born in 1819 and had made his money in shipping in New York. He had a knack for negotiating, making deals that somehow pleased both himself and the person he was dealing with. He moved south in the 1850s and was made the head of the Southern Division for the shipping company to which he was employed. The Civil War was profitable for many corporations, but Plant had been luckier than most. The company he was working for was based in the North and obviously sided with the Union. They had no more need for their Southern railroads and instead sold them all to Henry Plant. He named it the Southern Express Company. At the age of 42, 
Henry Plant now had a multi-state railroad company under his belt. Then, in 1861, his wife, Ellen, died. She had been sick for many years, and their doctor recommended trips to Florida to help care for her illnesses. Both Flagler and Plant found Florida in the same way, and lost their wives suddenly, just as their professional lives were reaching a new zenith. Henry Plant was not as motivated by this tragedy as his counterpart was. He worked slowly, carefully, deliberately. For the next two decades, he would work on his railroad, buying up bankrupted rail companies and slowly creating a web that spanned across the south. He even had steamships that trucked along the rivers, creating an almost entirely unbroken series of travel opportunities for those who wanted to extend themselves south. When Plant set out to expand his corporation further by creating an investment company for it, Flagler was one of his first investors. Ingram joined the Plant system when the Sanford Lions got consumed by Plant's ever-growing empire. It was a behemoth all its own. The steamships could extend all the way into the Caribbean and the Gulf Coast cities. Industries such as lumber and phosphate became dependent on the constant flow of transit that Plant's new system provided. He opened the Tampa Bay Hotel, his crown jewel. It cost him $3 million to build, which is just over $84 million in today's money. It was built of concrete and metal, maroon and silver along the outside. It was a pinnacle of Victorian and Moorish design, with silver minarets on top of several towers. Minarets are iconic pieces of Islamic design and were used, at the time, to exemplify the idea that Tampa Bay was an exotic getaway. It was a winter hotel open just between December and April. It was considered by many to be a palace, fit for the richest citizens and the finest experiences in the state. It's called, still, Florida's first magic kingdom. But Plant's dreams for Tampa didn't end there. He built Port Tampa not just for his steamships, but for companies to start shipping in and out of the city. People were flocking to Tampa in search of all of the incredible splendors that Plant was sharing with the world. Plant was a salesman through and through, and he knew how to sell this new city. Tampa boomed around Plant's railroad, and the Gulf Coast of Florida flourished. But Plant wasn't done. He had spent most of his life diversifying his investments as the travel tycoon of America. In 1892, he was 73 years old. Just like Flagler, he could have called it a day right here and never charted another path. Honestly, maybe he should have. Except a new challenge was calling his name. See, there was another visionary building in the Florida wilderness. Her name was Julia Tuttle. Julia Tuttle was a widow, having lost her husband Frederick in 1886. She was from Cleveland, Ohio, and in the early 1890s had bought up loads of land along the Miami River in South Florida. There was nothing down there. At the time, the city was called Fort Dallas, and the county's population was a meager 800 or so individuals. Tuttle believed truly in this land. She saw that it was situated at the very bottom of the state and could not only be an important port, but a wonderful place for people to visit. She had convinced another as well, James Ingram. They had met in Cleveland the previous year, and Ingram was intrigued by Tuttle's new prospects. His employer, Henry Plant, was as well. So in 1892, Plant sent Ingram out into the swamps with a crew of men to chart a course between Tampa and Miami. 
It was a devastating month-long expedition led by Ingram through the Everglades. It was a party of about 20 men, some explorers, some cooks, some architects. They set their first camp down on March 14, 1892. Their journals throughout the Everglades indicate men unaccustomed to this type of environment. They were trying to survey the land to see where best a railroad could fit crossing the Everglades. They befriended local Seminoles who visited with them as they made their way through. At one point, Ingram wrote, quote, Mosquitoes and red bugs, B-A-D, end quote. He underlined the last word. The sawgrass was taller than them and the water was impossible to push through. They ran out of food quickly and at a certain point, the plan was no longer to survey the land. The plan was to get out alive. On April 3rd, Ingram wrote, quote, Men are about used up, end quote. Days later, they made it to Miami safely. Once there, Ingram knew there would be no train from Tampa to Miami. It just wasn't plausible. Plant's ambitions had reached an end. He bought several hotels and several trains, but his crown jewel was the Tampa Bay Hotel. No more. There were no trails left to blaze. Ingram was beat down from his trip through the Everglades. The swamps had a devastating impact on his health and the health of his men. He saw the benefits of Miami and its location. Mrs. Tuttle had big dreams and a lot of cash, but the route through the Everglades was just impossible. There was, however, another way to Miami. The Atlantic Coast. Henry Flagler. Flagler was in the middle of a roll of successes. After connecting Jacksonville to St. Augustine and opening three total hotels in the latter, Flagler was expanding his railroad south, buying more and more railroads in the area and building more and more bridges. About 50 miles down the coast from St. Augustine was Ormond Beach, a small city with a luxurious hotel that had just opened. It was called the Hotel Ormond, and when Flagler bought it in 1890, it had just 70 rooms. Within a decade, Flagler would expand the hotel to include 400 rooms, swimming pools, working elevators, and a connection to the railroad that ran right to the front doors. By the time he had expanded it, it would be the largest wooden structure in the entire country. Flagler had no plans on marching south further. In fact, he considered for some time that Ormond Beach was the end of the line. Below this middle point of the state was sort of no man's land. These areas were overrun by nature and swamps, and digging into that wilderness seemed unlikely. It was for the best that Flagler got out of the railroad game now, because at the national level, the whole railroad industry was falling apart. Banks were investing in railroads now. In 1887, the Interstate Commerce Commission was created and railroads became a regulated industry. The federal government had never done this before, and it seemed like the most reasonable plan for this now burgeoning industry. This new commission would put a cap on rates so that the rich men who invested in the railroads could not over or underprice their travel rates. Companies traveling cross-country were in serious conflict as they all were trying to sell basically the same route, but not everyone was interested in fair competition. Within a few years, however, the whole thing collapsed. The Philadelphia and Reading Railroad was one of the largest employers in the country, and these regulations crippled them. They folded. Wall Street went into a panic. Businesses nationwide borrowed more than they could pay back. Workers were on the streets with nearly half of the citizens in the heartland going unemployed. Quote, 
Over 15,000 businesses closed during the Panic of 1893. End quote. Before the Depression would hit 30 years later, the massive expansion of railroads in the United States led to financial disaster. The panic lasted for four years, and many historians believe that the railroad companies across the country never, ever recovered. Henry Flagler was not owned by a bank, however. He had investors, certainly, but no one was watching Florida as Henry built up a domain unlike anyone else in the country. At the same time as Middle America was suffering from a devastating economic downturn, Henry Flagler was employing thousands of people and serving as the catalyst for a brand new state to find its place in the world. And, of course, he wasn't done yet. He had a new goal in mind. Palm Beach. The 1890s in Florida had brought some unusually cold winters. I discussed this a lot in my Snow Days episode, but Florida was seeing snow in Tallahassee and sweeping freezes across the north of the state. Before the great freezes a few years later, frost would pepper the state at completely random occasions. Tourists were coming to Florida to avoid such cold winters, and Flagler feared that these cold snaps would push them away from his new paradise. Ormond Beach could not be the end of the line. He needed to go further. He had visited a little spot of land 200 miles south. There was a beautiful piece of land down here, warm and sunny, impossibly beautiful. There was a lagoon and a stunning patch of Atlantic coast. There were two major problems. There was almost no one here, and there was nothing but muck between Ormond and this new paradise. Flagler needed someone who could chart this kind of course, and he knew just the man. Our old pal, James Ingram. Flagler had never built an inch of railroad in his life up to this point. He had four massive successful hotels and a blossoming travel company completely made of railroads he had bought. Could he possibly afford to start building railroads instead of just buying them? His second wife, Ida, was still causing trouble. Standard Oil was still being crushed on all sides by immense pressure. Flagler had come this far, and there was no way that he could stop now. Ingram and Flagler were both Ohio men, both ambitious and both reasonable. They had an understanding with each other, and within weeks of leaving Plant's employment, Ingram joined Flagler's crusade. Months went by. Flagler's train moved to Titusville, Cocoa, Rockledge, Fort Pierce, Lake Worth, and then, finally, Palm Beach. This was Flagler's paradise. He was immensely popular and a land boom followed him south. The few people who owned land in Palm Beach were suddenly overflowing with cash as loads of new Floridians sought to be the first in this settlement that Flagler would leave behind. Except Flagler wasn't leaving this behind. He didn't just create a resort town in Palm Beach. He had also created a commercial town just across the lagoon to the west in a town aptly named West Palm Beach. Sure, Henry had boosted Jacksonville, St. Augustine, and Ormond, but now Henry had just created two full towns, powered just by his ambition. Can you even fathom the feeling of seeing so much potential in a space and everyone trusting you, following you, and gathering around you? Henry had not had a hard life in many decades. He was in his early 60s, and 10 years ago, when he was at his absolute lowest, Florida was the way out of grief and heartache 
and pain. When distress followed him to Florida, he ran. He kept running, he kept building, he kept leaving trails behind him and everyone kept trusting him. He didn't care the expense. He ripped up the wilderness for his railroad and uprooted mangroves along the coast to promote a palm tree lined vista. He didn't build homes that worked with the land, he built stone and marble palaces on top of the wet soil. He was running faster and harder away from the pain he had lived with. If thousands of people were following your path, wouldn't you get addicted to it too? Wouldn't you never want to stop? Wouldn't all of the suffering that you and the state had dealt with have been worth it? You would be validated too. You would never stop building either. Henry built two hotels on the coast, the Royal Poinciana and the Palm Beach Inn. The latter would burn down, but then be rebuilt and renamed Breakers. He would build his primary home, Whitehall, right on the lagoon. It is now home to the Flagler Museum, a monument of white columns and metal balconies and coral-colored roofs. It was designed and built by the same men who built the Hotel Ponce de Leon in St. Augustine and was under a mile from the Palm Beach Inn. It was spring of 1894 and Flagler's empire now stretched over 200 miles along the East Coast. Summer came, autumn followed, and then winter broke the state in half. I used to believe that Florida had several defining moments in its history, moments where everything changed. The first was the Seminole Wars, the second was Flagler's Railroad, and the third was Walt Disney World. Now I believe there is only one defining moment that rocked the state to its core, the Great Freezes of 1894 and 1895. You've heard me talk about it countless times, but I cannot stress it enough. If you were in Florida right now, your city was profoundly affected by these freezes in ways the mind can't even believe. Two little freezes back to back destroyed the adult trees first, then exploded the younger trees from the inside out. Even Flagler's tropical paradise, Palm Beach, hit 27 degrees overnight. Ingram, on behalf of Flagler, traveled out to the citrus farmers who had lost their income in order to deliver the personal relief money. It only went so far. Nowhere was safe. Everyone could see that now. One famous legend tells of Flagler arriving one morning to see a bouquet of fresh orange blossoms in his office. They had been sent by Julia Tuttle, the rich widow in the muddy lands of South Florida. Nothing had frozen down there. Her orange trees survived. There was just under 500 people in the whole city, but Tuttle saw what Flagler could do. Flagler was a city maker. Where his trains went, people followed. She didn't need to say anything further. The flower spoke for her. Some historians believe that this story is simply that of folklore and that though Tuttle was the brains of the plan, it was actually old James Ingram who convinced Flagler of the next step. Regardless, in under a week, he had a schedule. Train to West Palm Beach, boat to Fort Lauderdale, and a carriage ride to the swamp of Miami. I don't need to tell you what happened next. April of 1895, Tuttle and Flagler made an agreement to settle Miami. Convicts built 66 miles of railroad from West Palm Beach southbound. April of 1896, passengers start arriving by rail. By midsummer, Miami was incorporated into the state. The population quintupled overnight. A city popped up, was subsequently destroyed by fire on Christmas night, and was eventually rebuilt. The Royal Palm Hotel opened in January of 1897, and just like that, 
Mr. Flagler had done it again. Like a magic trick, the man took a nowhere land and turned it into a destination. Many Florida historians note that he had an eye for what tourists wanted. He was once offered to build a grand resort in Tallahassee, but turned it down. There was no potential there for the mogul, but Miami was as fine as it could be, and the views over Biscayne Bay from his hotel were nothing short of heaven. Records don't reflect how Mr. Plant and his exotic palace over in Tampa felt about all this. It's hard to imagine he was pleased. He was growing older. He couldn't possibly keep up with his fellow Henry, sprouting up destinations like the Johnny Appleseed of coastal resorts. Flagler was King Midas, and Plant was lounging in a boiling palace, considering his next move. He was growing increasingly worried as tensions between Spain and America heated up. The tensions were concerning our southern neighbor, Cuba. He was contacting military officials due to his concern that Tampa would become a battleground. He offered up trains for supplies and troop movements. The government took him up on the offer and took it a step further. The Tampa Bay Hotel suddenly became an army headquarters when the Spanish-American War broke out in early 1898. Flagler too saw the profit in war having seen what the Civil War did for Ohio during the 1860s. He cleared out miles of scrubland west of Miami and offered it up to the troops. The city was essentially closed for business as the summer months were not as popular for the rich northern tourists, but the army marched south and saw Miami for what it had become, a place of splendor, a place of riches, and yet another jewel in Flagler's crown. While all of this was going on and Flagler gathered more and more power, more heartache befell his life this time in a new and sickening way. He had lost his first wife and eldest child to death in the previous decade, but now isolation was consuming him. Ida, his second wife, was growing more and more distraught. She was eventually put into an asylum in New York in 1897, and Henry Flagler never spoke to her again. He'd been having an affair with a socialite named Mary Lily Keenan, over 30 years his junior. He would later bribe state legislators in order to make the condition of insanity grounds for divorce so he could separate from Ida comfortably and move on to his third wife. His son, Harry Harkness Flagler, had grown more and more distant from him. He was Henry's only left surviving child, but as his son approached 30, a rift split them apart. Harry fled Florida. Some reports share that Henry was suffering from serious depression. Some accounts share that he was even suicidal, saying his pain was more unbearable than death. Back in Tampa, Plant was just a few months from his 80th birthday when he died, suddenly, from a heart attack. It was June 23, 1899. The century was coming to a close, and Plant's empire would soon be sold for parts. Several of his hotels were bought away from the Plant line, his steamships and railroads were sold off to larger travel companies. Two hotels burned to the ground within a decade. Flagler watched from across the state as his friendly rival's legacy disappeared from around him. All of those hotels, all of those railroads, all of that money, it meant nothing in the end. Flagler was not a young man, closing in on 70 himself. What did he have to show for it all? Plant was gone, and Flagler could feel that pressure pushing at the back of his neck. The thing he was always running from. The fear of losing it all. Hotels could not last forever. 
Wives could not last forever. Children could not last forever. Henry Flagler could not last forever. It was around this time that he famously said, I would have been a rich man if it hadn't been for Florida. It was also around this time that Henry decided to not leave well enough alone. He could have been done. He should have been done. But that southern horizon kept calling to him, and the end of the Spanish-American War had revealed that connections to South Florida could prove profitable should Cuba ever be a point of conflict again. There were a couple dozen islands south of Miami, a loose, detached string of keys where shrimpers, sponge divers, and fishers were making a living amongst the salty southern waters. Miami was not the end of the line for old Flagler. He had come so far, but he wasn't done. At the start of the 20th century, Henry began his largest project yet. It would also prove to be his final project. Henry Flagler would build a railroad across the ocean. Henry Flagler would ride a train into Key West. Thank you so much for listening to Chapter 2 in this four-part series into the stunning history of Henry Flagler. Be sure to share this episode with a friend or anyone who you think will enjoy a good story. I think this is a pretty good story. Please consider leaving a rating or review below. It is the best way for new listeners to find a little show like this, and I'm not exaggerating in the slightest. You can follow the show and see updates at WFMPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can send me an email at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. The Flagler theme song is Echo's Boogie Dance Hall by Lobo Loco. The primary resource for this episode was Last Train to Paradise by Les Standiford. You can find links to the other resources in the description below. The Flagler series art was done by Lauren Nix. You can follow her on Instagram at lauren.nix.photo. That's Nix spelt N-I-X. Next week, Chapter 3, Drained. My visit to Key West and the incredible achievements in the last 15 years of Flagler's life. His third wife, his final project, and his ultimate end. All that and more next Friday. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. And please, drink more water. Have a good one.